Welcome to the Gren Zone. Dissecting dermatology differently. Here is your host, Dr. Logan Kolb. Welcome back, my friends. So we've got a great episode ahead today that I know will be helpful for providers in derm and especially those in primary care, too. This time, we'll be helping out our pediatric patients by discussing diaper dermatitis, which affects between 25 to 50% of infants. We will start things out today by going over the diaper dermatitis differential, quickly discuss the basic pathogenesis and presentation of each condition, and then see a patient together in clinic with diaper dermatitis, this time with another new attending, our favorite pediatric dermatologist, Dr. Binky. Hey, I'm Dr. Binky. Let's just take a break from all the bone saws and condescending questions, and let's just learn some derm today. Before we dive in, I'll quick mention our disclaimer that this episode is meant for educational and informational purposes only and should not be used as a substitute for medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. Nor does this episode represent the views of Orange Park Medical Center, Olmstead Medical Center, or their affiliates. So before we get into this whole diaper dermatitis differential, which you don't fully have to know yet, why are babies so prone to dermatitis in this area? If you think about it, you have this delicate baby skin in an area with lots of movement and friction. Then you put that skin under the occlusion of a diaper and fill it with poop and pee several times a day. It's not surprising that up to half of babies get diaper dermatitis, but it's not just mechanical forces. Another important component relates to changes in the skin pH in this poopy, urine-soaked environment. Our normal skin pH lies in the acidic range from 4 to 7, which is protective and is sometimes called the acid mantle. However, this acidic pH becomes much more alkaline in the environment underneath the diaper. The traditional thinking was that bacteria in the stool convert urinary urea, which is a nearly neutral compound, to ammonia, which has a much more basic pH around 11.6. Some recent studies have refuted this pathogenesis, but regardless, we do know that the skin becomes more alkaline under the diaper. This alkaline pH makes the skin prone to irritants and candida, which grows much more easily in this alkaline environment. Breastfed infants also have less alkaline stool than formula-fed babies, so diet can play a role as well. You know, your crunchy granola patients are going to ask you how diet relates to everything in pediatric rashes, so you better be ready for it. But anyways, let's get out of the weeds and get to the fun stuff. What is your main differential diagnosis for diaper dermatitis? I've got another mnemonic to help you remember some common differential diagnoses for diaper dermatitis. So I want you to remember SCAMP with S for seborrheic dermatitis, C for candida and contact dermatitis, which is most commonly irritant but can also be allergic contact dermatitis. Then we have A for atopic dermatitis, M for miliaria, and P for either psoriasis or perianal strep. 
Again, for the more common causes of diaper dermatitis, remember SCAMP, with S for seborrheic dermatitis, C for candida and contact dermatitis, which is most commonly irritant but can also be allergic contact dermatitis, then A for atopic dermatitis, M for miliaria, and P for psoriasis or perianal strep. A small little disclaimer, atopic dermatitis is actually pretty uncommon under the diaper, so if you want to use allergic contact derm or acrodermatitis entropathica for your A in the SCAMP mnemonic, by all means. But besides our SCAMP differential, other less common causes of diaper dermatitis that we cannot miss include acrodermatitis entropathica, Langerhans cell histiocytosis, granuloma gluteal infantum, and Kawasaki disease. I know that's a ton of names I just went through, so if you didn't get it all, don't worry about it. We'll be discussing each of these conditions here in a bit. Around these parts, scamp is a word for a kid that's always causing trouble. Diaper rash or not, he's hard to hate because he's cute as a button. If mnemonics are not your thing, I want to leave you with one more way to think about your diaper dermatitis differential. We can also break diaper dermatitis into three groups based on whether the dermatitis is related to the diaper. So group one are conditions that are related to the occlusive and alkaline environment created by the diaper. So these disorders include candida and irritant contact dermatitis. These are going to be your most common bread and butter diagnoses that you make for diaper dermatitis. Group two includes a variety of conditions that are aggravated by the environment of the diaper, and these include seborrheic dermatitis, psoriasis, atopic dermatitis, miliaria, and granuloma gluteal infantum. Then group 3 includes conditions that may occur in the diaper area but are completely unrelated to the environment of the diaper itself. These disorders include herpes simplex, scabies, hand foot and mouth disease, bolus impetigo, and congenital syphilis. So if you'll notice, a lot of infectious causes. But regardless of how your brain works to remember this differential, it's important to keep a wide differential for our patients with diaper dermatitis because the treatments will vary and there are conditions such as Langerhans cell histiocytosis that we cannot miss for our patients. So next, I will quickly run through the basic clinical presentation and some pearls for each of these conditions before we see a patient together with Dr. Binky. So let's work our way down the SCAMP mnemonic for diaper dermatitis and start with seborrheic dermatitis. So how does a sweet little pumpkin boy present with seborrheic dermatitis in the diaper area? These kiddos often have classic lesions of seborrheic dermatitis on the scalp that we call cradle cap, and in the diaper area they can have dermatitis that is more of a salmon pink color. Since sebderm is caused by yeast that loves that warm and moist environment, it will often affect the folds, just like Canada. Treatment of seborrheic dermatitis includes anti-dandruff shampoos that you can use as a wash, such as selenium sulfide, along with topical antifungals like ketoconazole or cycloperox. You can refer back to episode 6 for a longer discussion on sebderm, which is a less common cause of diaper dermatitis compared to the next two disorders in our scamp mnemonic, including candida and contact dermatitis. So, what's the classic clinical presentation of candida in the diaper area? Candida has three classic findings. One, the bright red erythema of the rash itself. 
two, involvement of the folds and possibly the scrotum, and three, the satellite papules and pustules at the periphery of the dermatitis. Again, the three classic findings for Canada include bright red erythema, involvement of the folds and possibly the scrotum, and satellite papules and pustules at the periphery of the dermatitis. The involvement of the folds and satellite lesions are two crucial clues to look for on your exam. Patients with candida diaper rashes may also have thrush in their mouth and a history of recent antibiotic use. It's also important to know that if candida in the diaper area gets angry enough, patients may also get secondary id reactions where the rash appears to spread onto the torso and even the face. This id reaction is caused by the immune system getting ramped up by the primary infection and thus the immune system causes id lesions elsewhere on the body. And when it comes to treatment for candida, we often turn to topical nystatin or the azoles like clotrimazole, myconazole, or econazole. The second C in the SCAMP mnemonic includes contact dermatitis, which is most often irritant but may also be allergic. If you would like to brush up on the difference between the two, please refer back to Season 1, Episode 13 on contact dermatitis. In residency, I always used to wonder why Grumpy was so grumpy. Maybe he had diaper dermatitis. Tell me, how would irritant contact dermatitis present in the diaper area in a little pumpkin girl? Irritant contact dermatitis in the diaper area is sometimes called chafing dermatitis. It often affects the convex or outside areas of the vulva, scrotum, and buttocks and spares the folds since irritants like urine and stool cannot reach these areas where skin is touching skin. This relative sparing of the folds is another key thing to look for on exam because remember that candida often involves the folds because they create a warm, moist environment that candida loves to grow in. You've been saying the word moist a lot. It's not wrong, but maybe don't say it so much. And while most cases of contact dermatitis in the diaper area are considered irritant, don't forget about allergic contact dermatitis to things such as rubber in the diaper elastic or the preservative methyl isothiazolinone in baby wipes. Treatment for irritant contact derm includes good diaper hygiene, which we'll discuss later, and hydrocortisone 2.5% two to three times daily if the skin is inflamed. And obviously, if there's an allergic component, you want to switch to hypoallergenic products and treat the inflammation with hydrocortisone as well. So if we closed out the episode here, you would correctly diagnose and treat about 80 to 90% of diaper dermatitis cases, since candida and irritant contact derm are so common. However, patients will often get referred for further evaluation after they've failed to improve with nystatin or a combination antifungal and steroid. So we're going to journey past the B-squad and into the varsity level differential diagnosis, so stick with me here. Next, we have A for atopic dermatitis in the diaper area. Since the occlusive environment of the diaper helps maintain moisture in dry, atopic skin, this isn't frequently a cause of diaper dermatitis. But when it is, atopic dermatitis in the diaper area will present with hyperlinearity, erythema, and excoriations, along with classic lesions of atopic derm elsewhere on the body. These patients should also have a personal or family history of atopy, so you want to ask the parents about a history of eczema, hay fever, and seasonal allergies in the family. So moving on in our SCAMP differential, we have M familiaria. Ming, ming, ming. 
You know new mamas, they like to swaddle up their babies and put them in hats. And we live in Florida, and it's 95 degrees out. So what is miliaria? Miliaria is caused by obstruction of the sweat ducts that typically occurs under hot and occlusive environments. This includes patients of all ages who are feverish and laying in bed all day, but it also makes sense that miliaria occurs in the diaper region as well. So miliaria can be subdivided into three types based on the depth of the duct blockage. Miliaria crystallina is the most superficial type with blockage of the sweat duct in the stratum corneum on the surface of the skin, and this results in clear pinpoint vesicles. However, these patients typically present with a few vesicles in a sea of scales, since these vesicles are so superficial that they rupture and leave behind these scales. The next type of miliaria is miliaria rubra, aka prickly heat, which presents with more erythematous papules and is due to sweat duct blockage deeper down within the epidermis. And lastly, miliaria pustulosa is caused by an even deeper blockage and has more pustular lesions. Of these three types, miliaria rubra is probably the most likely to present in clinic for evaluation, since crystallina is subtle and mild while miliaria pustulosa is much more rare. Treatment includes avoidance of overheating and occlusion by removing excess clothing and allowing the diaper area to air out as much as possible. Cooler baths and using fans to cool down can be helpful in these situations as well. So, we've covered sebderm, candida, contact dermatitis, atopic dermatitis, and miliaria. So the P in our SCAMP mnemonic is for psoriasis or perianal strep. Let's first talk psoriasis. I'm just warning you guys, you better know this one for Dr. Grumpy Pants. How does psoriasis present in the diaper area? Psoriasis in the diaper area classically appears as red or pink colored plaques that have a very sharp demarcation between the rash and normal skin. This sharp demarcation is your big clue on exam. Psoriasis in the diaper area often involves the folds and it won't have the classic silvery scale that you're used to seeing because the excess moisture from the occlusive diaper gets rid of it. Around 10% of affected babies will have nail changes such as pitting, onycholysis, or oil spots, so it doesn't hurt to get in the habit of looking at them. And once you get your diagnosis of psoriasis, treatment includes hydrocortisone 2.5% two to three times daily for short periods of time. Topical tacrolimus, aka protopic, is a non-steroidal that can be helpful for longer-term control if needed, whereas calcipitrine tends to be irritating in the diaper area and isn't typically used for psoriasis here. So the other P in SCAMP stands for perianal strep, which will be bright red and can be painful or itchy. It often heals with desquamation, and there may be a history of strep throat in a sibling or someone else at home. It's also helpful to ask if the patient goes to daycare because they can always pick up strep from there as well. And also remember that strep can also be a trigger for psoriasis, so they can coexist in the diaper area, or patients can have guttate psoriasis lesions elsewhere on their body. Diagnosis of perianal strep includes culturing the erythema, and treatment is with antibiotics such as topical mupirocin or oral amoxicillin. 
So again, for your more common causes of diaper dermatitis, remember SCAMP with S for seborrheic dermatitis, C for candida and contact dermatitis, which is most commonly irritant but can also be allergic, A is for atopic dermatitis or acrodermatitis enteropathica, M is for miliaria, and P is for psoriasis or perianal strep. So believe it or not, every once in a while, parents are right, and diet does play a role in these rashes. So what is acrodermatitis enteropathica? Acrodermatitis enteropathica is due to zinc deficiency and can either be inherited or acquired. Acrodermatitis enteropathica is inherited as a defect in the SLC39A4 gene, which helps zinc absorption, or it can be an acquired zinc deficiency when babies are weaned off their mother's breast milk, since breast milk has better zinc bioavailability than formulas. Bing, bing. These cute little acrodermatitis enteropathica babies get rashy in three areas. Which are they? Regardless of the cause of zinc deficiency, acrodermatitis enteropathica presents with erythema, pustules, and crusted patches or plaques in three areas, one being the diaper area, two the perioral region, and as the name suggests, the acral areas for number three on the hands and feet. Again, acrodermatitis enteropathica is due to zinc deficiency and presents with erythema, pustules, and crusted patches or plaques in three areas, the diaper area, the perioral region, and the acral areas of the hands and feet. Some other clinical findings include alopecia, failure to thrive, and diarrhea. Diagnosis includes labs showing decreased serum zinc levels or low levels of the zinc-dependent enzyme alkaline phosphatase, which is a really good surrogate marker that is included in a CMP and may be overlooked. For acrodermatitis enteropathica, a biopsy can be helpful as well, but isn't often needed since we can combine the clinical presentation with the lab abnormalities to make the diagnosis. Treatment for these kiddos includes zinc supplementation, which vastly improves the rash within just a few days. Alright, the next differential for diaper dermatitis is Langerhans cell histiocytosis, aka LCH. This is a rare disorder that we cannot miss for our patients because it often has systemic involvement with a 20% mortality rate. I won't be going into all the details since it's a little beyond the scope of today's podcast, but we will hit the basics. So like Grumpy, this information is becoming a little bit antiquated. But what are the four classically taught variants of Langerhans cell histiocytosis? Langerhans cell histiocytosis used to be categorized into four variants. One being letter seaweed disease, which occurs in kids less than two years old and has a poor prognosis. Two, Hand-Schiller-Christian syndrome from two to six years old with the triad of DEB, diabetes insipidus, exophthalmos, and osteolytic bone lesions, especially involving the cranium. Then the third type is congenital self-healing reticulohistiocytosis of Hashimoto-Pritzker that is the skin-limited form present at birth 
and 4, eosinophilic granuloma that occurs in older kids above age 7 with localized LCH skin lesions and asymptomatic bone lesions. I know this is a lot, but that's all I will mention of these variants since we are moving away from their use because kids with LCH will often have overlapping features of several of them. But here's what I want you to know about Langerhans cell histiocytosis. These kids get yellow-brown crusted papules in the seborrheic distribution of the scalp and diaper areas. The lesions and their distribution give the rash kind of a dirty look, but there are three specific pearls I want to leave you with. One is that LCH lesions have more of a petechial or purpuric look in these areas. Two is that they may have lymphadenopathy. And three is that lesions will respond minimally to treatments used for other causes of diaper dermatitis. So if you have a kid with persistent lesions in these areas, the parents are doing a great job with their diaper hygiene, and you've treated with topical steroids, ketoconazole, nystatin, the whole nine yards, it's time for a biopsy to rule out LCH. Case closed. So lastly, before we see a diaper dermatitis patient with Dr. Binky, I want to again quick mention some miscellaneous disorders that are unrelated to the diaper but can occur in this area. Again, for these, think infection, and remember, scabies, bullus impetigo, herpes simplex, hand, foot, mouth, and butt disease caused by Coxsackie virus, and congenital syphilis. If violaceous nodules are present, you will want to do a biopsy to detect granuloma gluteal infantum. And if you're looking at a very sick kid, just know that Kawasaki disease patients can have tender perianal erythema that desquamates similar to perianal strep. All right, so let's imagine you're working in clinic with Dr. Binky. You see two young parents go into a room with the cutest little Gerber baby that you've seen in weeks. The MA comes out after a couple of minutes and hands you the chart and says, Binky? I know my tubes are tied, but I would get them untied if I could have another baby as cute as this kid. Anyways, they have a diaper rash. Have fun. So you go in, introduce yourself, and get your history of the rash. When did it start? What's been going on with it since then? What treatments have you tried? How long did you try them for? Did they help? Is today a good day or a bad day for the rash? Etc. Etc. You want to be sure they're not using creams such as Mycolog, which contains triamcinolone, or Lotrazone, which contains betamethasone, because these steroids are way too strong to be using under occlusion in the diaper area on this baby skin. So once you've got that basic history, you want to go through diaper hygiene practices. How many times are the parents changing the diapers each day? If they're not doing it at least six to eight times a day, that baby has irritating poop and pee contacting their skin and contributing to some irritant contact dermatitis. You also want to know how they cleanse the diaper area with diaper changes. Do they use wet wipes, washcloths, and what kind of soap do they use? You want them to be gentle, gentle, gentle. The next crucial part of diaper hygiene is using barrier creams and ointments with every diaper change. Parents should be applying a thick, thick layer of barrier creams, ointments, or paste thick enough that you can't see the underlying skin. You also want to be sure they're not using any powders, which can cause issues due to being aerosolized. Some good barrier options include A&D ointment, Desitin, or Boudreaux's butt paste. Some other pearls for diaper hygiene are to only cleanse when stool is present, gently pat dry after bathing rather than rubbing this sensitive area, and try to get a few hours of air exposure each day if you can. And then they poop on the floor. I have carpet. No thank you. 
Now that you've got your basic history and discussed diaper hygiene, you want to ask a couple more questions before you get to your exam. Ask how baby has been feeling lately, and specifically if they have had diarrhea or been sick and required antibiotics. Remember that diarrhea predisposes them to irritation and contact dermatitis, while antibiotics predisposes them to candida. And now you're ready for your physical exam. Look closely at the rash itself and note its color. If it's bright red, you might be thinking candida or strep. If it has a salmon color, think seborrheic dermatitis or psoriasis. Then look at the periphery of the rash for satellite macules, papules, or pustules that can clue you into candida. Another crucial aspect to examine is whether the rash spares the skin folds as an irritant contact dermatitis or if it involves those folds as is seen in candida, seborrheic dermatitis, or psoriasis. Remember, if it's irritant contact dermatitis, irritants like poop and pee aren't able to reach those skin folds, so they are relatively spared. Next, you want to do a full skin check to look for clues elsewhere in the body. Look in the mouth for thrush and look around the oral and acral areas for lesions that are suggestive of acrodermatitis enteropathica. If you're worried about it, you want to ask if the baby has recently been weaned off breastfeeding before the rash started. And if you're worried about psoriasis, seborrheic, or atopic dermatitis, look for the classic lesions elsewhere on the scalp, face, neck, behind the ears, axilla, and umbilicus. For psoriasis, nail changes such as pitting can be seen as well, so again, get in the habit of taking a quick look. So, with that good H&P, you should have a much better idea of what is causing the rash. Alright, so it's about 2.30, last patient of the day, and last question of the day. What workup might you consider doing? For further workup, you could do a KOH of one of the satellite lesions for Canada, or do a bacterial or viral culture to help you identify strep, staph, or a viral etiology such as HSV or Coxsackie virus. Labs are commonly done, but if you're worried about acrodermatitis enteropathica, you'd want to check a serum zinc and alkaline phosphatase level. And as I mentioned before, if you're worried about Langerhans cell histiocytosis or the patient isn't getting better with treatment, a biopsy can be helpful as well. Alright, so to round things out, I want to finish with a summary of our basic diaper dermatitis differential and quickly mention treatments. So remember SCAMP, with S for seborrheic dermatitis which has a salmon color and classic lesions elsewhere, C is for Canada and its classic red color, satellite lesions and involvement of the folds, C can also be for contact dermatitis which is most commonly irritant and spares the folds, A is for atopic dermatitis or allergic contact dermatitis to wet wipes, M is for miliaria, which often has the itchy erythematous papules of miliaria rubra. P is for psoriasis, which is well demarcated. Or P can be for perianal strep, which is bright red and may also be affecting another family member. Your toolkit of treatment will always include good diaper hygiene, including frequent diaper changes, gentle cleansing, and plenty of barrier creams, ointments, or paste. If the skin is inflamed, reach for your 2.5% hydrocortisone, but if you suspect candida, reach for your topical nystatins or azoles. And the most important point to drive home is that you make sure you have close follow-up for these babies. There could be an occasion where you clear up the irritation in Canada and there's Langerhans cell histiocytosis waiting beneath it all, and you won't see it or catch it early enough if you don't have good follow-up for these patients. 
So that's all I have for diaper dermatitis. Thank you so much for listening in to today's episode. If you're enjoying the podcast, please do me a big favor and leave a five-star review and send the episode to a friend who could enjoy it as well. So thanks again for tuning in. I'm Logan Kolb, and we'll see you next time where we jump back into the reaction patterns by taking on reaction pattern number three, the vascular disorders. Have a great day and take a little time to do something fun. You've earned it. This episode is copyright 2020 Pro Podcasting LLC, all rights reserved. The Grenzone Zone Podcast is a service provided by Pro Podcasting LLC and is not affiliated with any other service providers.